people of Ukraine are being slaughtered in this proxy war between the two old Cold War powers, is there nothing that we can do? We are not powerless. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. I have no idea who the source of this quote is, but it's exceptionally wise and quite insightful. Politics and protest, both are necessary, but neither is sufficient. In a Republican form of government such as ours, which is neither direct democracy nor autocracy, at least for now, policy is only changed through a combination of activities. And yes, heavy lifting is required. As Ringo Starr sang back in 1971 in a song written by George Harrison, it don't come easy, but change can and does happen. Perhaps the process is best illustrated by the legendary words that Franklin Roosevelt said to civil rights leader A. Philip Randolph when Randolph asked the president to support a bill to require fair labor practices. The story is that FDR said, I'm with you, I support you, now go out and make me do it. That's how it works. That's how change has been made in the United States. In a dictatorship, the people have no power. And since the successful anti-war movement of the 1960s, the powers that be have been remarkably effective at convincing us there's nothing we can do, that we the people have no power. Of course, that serves their interests, but it's just not true. As Roosevelt said, we need to make it safe for politicians and elected officials to take a stand. After all, they're about getting elected and re-elected, and that's where movements come in. In his recent book, What It Took to Win, historian Michael Kazin showed that over the past century and a half, Democrats won when there were movements on the ground, unions and the like. Without them, there's no pressure, no momentum for making political or policy change. As our guest today, Jacobin Magazine's uh, staff writer, Branko Marsecic, writes of the bloody stalemate in Ukraine, the lack of progress toward peace, anti-war efforts can play an important role in opening up political space for an administration trapped in its own stifling, peace-averse domestic political climate. His article in Jacobin is titled, Joe Biden Can't Seek Peace in Ukraine, without a robust anti-war movement. The obvious question is, though it's necessary, is that even possible? Branko, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Hey, thanks very much for having me. Well, it's so much easier to start a war than to end one. No lack of evidence for that. As you say, Russia's war on Ukraine has been a brutal one. And the world seems mainly united in condemning Putin and his apparent targeting of civilians in Ukraine, there doesn't appear to be much prospect for either side being any, able to claim any sort of victory. But there's got to be an end to this awful war. Neither player shows any likelihood of backing down, and there's simply got to be pressure from the outside. In many ways, yeah, it looks like a proxy war between the two entities that made up the Cold War, Russia versus the USA. Those are two of the big players in the world stage in the 2020s, but they're no longer the only big powers. Your essay suggests other world powers have an opportunity here to serve their interests. On another geopolitical stage, the Middle East, as you point out, the U.S. has been a staunch defender of the Saudi regime, while Russia has always been there for Iran. To be honest, I was shocked when it was announced that there was a rapprochement between Iran and the Saudis. I, I truly believe such a thing would never happen. So dug in was each side. What was the outside power that made that happen? How did they do it? What was the pressure that worked? I mean, with China uh, and, its, and its facilitation of, of diplomacy and, and, and that front of, uh, of the world, I mean, it was, uh, you know, China had, had kind of engaged in a lot of the measures that maybe the United States used to, to do, you know, in the, in the Cold War when it wasn't sort of the, the, the uh, uh, you know, global hegemon or the, or the single kind of uh, global power. Um, you know, it took more of an impartial uh, 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 position uh, between the two countries. You know, I mean, the U.S. has been pressuring Iran 
um, and really waging a kind of low-key form of warfare against it for, right. I mean, decades now with right. sanctions and sort of, you know, uh, uh, other types, types of pressure, uh, fighting with some of its proxies in Iraq and elsewhere. Um, and, of course, the U.S. also has been giving um, a, a, a large degree of support to the Saudi war in Yemen, um, which itself is, is a bit of a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Given that, you know, it, 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 the U.S. did not really have the status in the region that it could uh, uh, use to, to offer itself as a kind of neutral arbiter between two sides, whereas China could. Um, and I think the other thing is that, you know, I mean, for better or worse, uh, uh, China tends to take this uh, approach in the countries that it deals with where it doesn't um, necessarily lecture them about human rights or democracy and that kind of thing. Um, now, there are definitely you know, uh, negatives to that, of course, but uh, a lot of countries see that as a more refreshing approach uh, to the world where they kind of resent U.S., uh, what they call mm -hmm. lectures about, about the problems that they have inside those countries. And I think, you know, I mean, perhaps some of those lectures might go down a little easier if it wasn't for the fact that, of course, this concern uh, with human rights, with democracy and so on and so forth that comes out of uh, U.S. policymakers and, and not just the U.S., but other Western policymakers um, is often very selective yeah. and, and self-serving. And, and full of double standards. So I think uh, all of those things, I mean, along with the fact that, you know, China has um, become obviously a, a very, very economically powerful country. It's yes. the largest trading partner to the majority of the world's countries. Uh, and some of the um, uh, 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 pain that the Saudi-U.S. relationship has gone through in recent years, um, you know, particularly under the Biden administration, I think all of that has contributed too. But, but basically... You know, it's sort of a perfect storm of things came together to, to help this uh, uh, process of rapprochement happen. Yeah, China is not us. And, and you know, the, I think with all the United States, you know, focus on militarism and, you know, tremendous uh, war powers, uh, the world's getting tired of that. And it's not really working. In fact, a lot, there's a lot of indication that it's working against our interests. And, and a lot of us here in the United States really do want peace in Ukraine. I mean, we're really, uh, we see what Putin is doing and we want peace there. And after the infamous China balloon incident and the heated situation in Taiwan, it does appear that the administration is eager to paint China as a threat to the U.S. and to peace in general. And in terms of public opinion, it's working pretty well. As you know, recently leaked intercepted Russian intelligence suggests that Beijing had approved provision of lethal aid to Russia with the implication that such aid it is in support of Russia's war in Ukraine. Now, that's the picture that we've gotten, the words that we've gotten, that Beijing is supporting uh, uh, Moscow. What's the reality? What role is China playing thus far? Can they be part of a solution to that Eastern European war. Yeah, so I was uh, pretty dismayed when I read that because um, I, I think that's bad for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, if, if China started to uh, supply weapons, you know, lethal military aid to Russia as part of this war, not only would that be a major escalation of this war because suddenly it's not, I mean, it's bad enough that it's, you know, Russia versus Ukraine and, and then by proxy NATO and the United States. That's a very dangerous and combustible situation as it is, um, which, by the way, some of the, the leaks have shed more light on just how combustible it has been. Um, but uh, uh, if, if China now starts getting military, then this becomes, you know, not just a... A, a proxy war as well as, you know, of course, a war of aggression of Russia and Ukraine, but a proxy war as well between Russia and, and NATO, but suddenly a proxy war between China and NATO and China and the United States. Um, and besides that, uh, you know, by coming in and, and supplying uh, lethal aid, uh, then China loses this status uh, that, that they can go into the war uh, saying it's a neutral arbiter, saying that it can mediate huh? because it's not technically involved in the war. Um, now, thankfully, even though the intelligence says that they, they did approve it, um, U.S. officials have also told the press that they have not seen evidence that China has actually sent the, those, those weapons to Russia. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that's also important to note, there was another leak 
that um, it was about uh, Ukraine's requests to strike within Russia. Um, and and what the league told us is that mm. basically the United States said, no, you can't oh. do that. And, and, and the, yeah, restrained Ukraine from doing so. And, and part of the reason that they did so was that they worried that if now Ukraine starts striking within Russia, that would actually pull China into the conflict because it would start to say, oh, wow, you know, this, Russia, you know, which is our security partner is under threat and we might have to actually now really take action to, to prevent something catastrophic from happening to it. Um, so for all these reasons, thankfully, it has not happened, that seemingly, according to U.S. officials, that they've sent those weapons, um, which means that, you know, there is a real possibility now that China, you know, in, in January, February, put forward this uh, this peace proposal uh, and, and, you know, it's gotten positive signals from both Russia and, and from Ukraine. There is a possibility uh, that, that maybe they could actually mediate something to, to try and end this horrendous war. It's yeah, China is playing a bigger and bigger role in uh, world politics. No question about that. I mean, for them to bring together Iran and the Saudis, boy, that's just amazing to me. I never thought anything like that could happen. And, and we do want peace in Ukraine. Emmanuel Macron, president of France, recently went to Beijing and met with uh, Xi Jinping and said China's efforts towards peace in Ukraine were a good thing. Was he being played, as many Americans would think, or, and, and as uh, people in power would, would suggest that oh, Macron's being played? What was Macron talking about? I mean, uh, you know, this, this reaction to Macron going to China to, to basically endorse its peace proposal uh, that, that, that you described, it's kind of par for the course, I think, in the particular political environment we're on uh, right now. I mean, uh, really ever since the Russian invasion, but I would say even before then, you know, really since 2016, the the rhetoric uh, and the discourse around international relations, around, you know, what, the, what a rational, reasonable policy is towards Russia and the United States and the West, uh, and, and what reasonable policy is towards even a country like China, it's really devolved into this kind of Cold War-esque kind of zero-sum black-and-white kind of framing where uh, there, there is no possibility seen for any sort of uh, reasonable dialogue between powers uh, that are in conflict, such as Russia and the United States. Um, and, and anyone who seems to kind of push towards that is labeled a, you know, an appeaser or a fool, or gullible, so on and so forth. So that's basically what happened with Macron. Um, I, I don't share that analysis. Um, when China put its, its peace proposal, um, it was you know, similarly dismissed in the West um, uh, by many commentators, by, by Western officials. And yet, you know, as I said just before, we saw not only Putin um, in, a, in a pretty important uh, uh, but subtle shift from what he had been uh, saying a few months earlier, uh, uh, saying that, that, you know, this was a, uh, a framework that could work, that, could, that, that Russia could live with as, as far as uh, making some sort of peace happen. But we also saw, very importantly, um, a positive signal from from Zelensky, from Vladimir Zelensky, the, the, the president of Ukraine, who um, ever since, I would say, at least September last year, has really taken a, a much more hardline position against the idea of negotiations and against diplomacy, which, by the way, he did not hold um, uh, uh, when the war began, and I would say as late as, you know, around June or so. Um, so both of these things signal that actually the, the two warring, the principal warring parties in that war um, took China's uh, uh, peace proposal a lot more seriously than the West did. And, and you're right, you know, Macron, I mean, look, France, like much of Europe, has been suffering tremendously from the uh, uh, blowback effect of sanctions on, on Russia. Um, you know, we can't really underestimate that. The U.S. has been somewhat uh, insulated from yes. that. But, but in Europe, there, there hasn't been. There have been huge protests, not just in France, but other countries, we've seen governments uh, fall, such as in Italy, because of the pressures that have uh, 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 happened as a result of the cost of living crisis that this has contributed a whole lot to. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot more impetus in Europe, and particularly among France, which has always kind of been more of a, um, uh, a slightly more independent voice yes. in Europe and, and more sort of inclined to be a, a mediator, especially with regards to Russia. Um, and, and, you know, it's not just France. Another key 
figure that has bought into or that has that has uh, uh, seen this as a possible vehicle for peace is is Lula da Silva, the yes. president of Brazil, um, and he went to to China similar to Macron, and he he endorsed the plan, and they talked about you know pushing for this. So this is not just a a thing that you know. Macron uh, has been sort of fooled into hey. into going along with. There's a lot a lot of the world actually looks at this peace proposal and they say, actually, yeah, that sounds pretty good to us. It would be it would be great if we found some way, some reasonable way, to make this war finally uh, end. And clearly, you know, the U.S. used to be able to call all the shots in in Europe since World War II, and we've kind of assumed that we could all the time. But there, I mean money <laughs> you know they're suffering y europe they you know they're in a, a different position they're not insulated so they can be more flexible toward peace and again what what is part of the china effort toward peace what are they proposing i mean it's it's uh, a number of different things i mean they they talk about a a uh, respect for for sovereignty and borders um you know i mean how that would work with the uh uh russia's annexation of those territories uh, i don't quite quite know um that's an open question but but generally it it sort of endorses a you know a, a framework that I think most people in the West would would agree with you know in terms of respect for international law and 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 respecting other countries' sovereignty and, and find some sort of uh, security architecture for that region that kind of works for both parties so that both parties you know Russia and Ukraine feel feel safe uh, and 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 feel secure and don't think that um, they're going to get attacked I mean you know that might sound uh, bizarre to people uh, in the United States. They think, well, hold on, how's Russia feeling unsafe? Uh, it attacked Ukraine. Of course, that is true. But also, we have to understand the, the, the causes for this war, uh, which which uh, predate uh, anything that happened in the last few years and, you know, go back to, to U.S. policy, going back to, to right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's, it's ultimately part of the reason why it was dismissed at the time is some of the Chinese proposal does seem a little... Kind of thin and, and boilerplate, um, but the start, important maybe. exactly, exactly. It's a start, and and that's you know what Ukraine. That's what Zelensky uh, said. You know, he said, "Look, if China's talking about things like national sovereignty and and respecting borders and and territorial integrity and international law." Uh, you know, I mean, that's a good thing, and we should we should uh, uh, talk to China about that. Those are things that we agree with. So um, it's it's a framework, but again, it's it's gotten some some buy-in um, from the two warring parties uh, and from, from other countries, other, other major countries. And, and I think, you know, the United States, uh, it would be wise for them to, 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 uh, to pursue it as well, because I mean, this war is also very, very dangerous, uh, you know, for U.S. national security as well. And it has, you know, the, the, the tensions have been going on for quite some time. It's like, you know, the First World War didn't just suddenly start in 1914. Uh, you know, the, the pressures, the political uh, uh, anger had been going on for quite some time. And in Eastern Europe, borders have changed a lot from time to time. Uh, <laughs> as you know, uh, in case you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about Ukraine. Is it possible for the people to have any power to press for peace. Our guest today is Branko uh, Marsetic, who's uh, written an article in a good magazine that not enough people uh, read, in my opinion. It's called Jacobin. Of course, there's a history of that name as well. And, you know, if, if you were to ask the most popular political figure in America today, I, it's not Biden, it's not Trump, it's Vladimir Zelensky. Do you see shifts from both Putin and Zelensky's public resistance to negotiations earlier this year. They've both been, you know, very publicly resistant, but they have perhaps internal pressure. Do you see any uh, actual shifts in, in their positions? Well, I mean, with Zelensky, it's, it's hard to uh, say, you know, we have to go by these kind of small uh, tidbits that we get in, in terms of the shifts in, in, in public stances. I mean, to me, 
uh, Zelensky's response to the Chinese plan, even though he didn't say, yes, absolutely, let's let's negotiate, let's enter the talks right now, um, the, the positive response to it um, was, uh, uh, struck me as, as very different to some of the rhetoric coming out of uh, Ukrainian leadership before, which has always been, you know, basically... Um, uh, negotiations uh, surrender. It's it's sort of um, uh, it's by de facto sort of siding with the Russians. It's unacceptable. We will reclaim uh, the territory we lost militarily, and and that's that. Um, and I mean, you know, I think people need to understand this that that Zelensky, much like every one of these leaders, you know, including Biden, including Putin, Zelensky is himself uh, something of a captive of the political climate that has existed in Ukraine since the start of the war, but also preceded the war. Um, as uh, to some extent, also a captive of, you know, the, the wider political establishment that he is, uh, 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 you know, meant to be at the head of. Um, uh, th- that means not just that there are people who are much more hard-lined than him, uh, who are yes. in his administration, yeah. uh, in his inner circle, um, but also, you know, the, the Ukrainian far right, um, which has been presented to people yes. uh, wrongly as kind of non-existent and sort of a non-factor, it is very real. And I mean, that part of the reason why Ukraine was unable to fulfill its part of the Minsk agreements earlier and part of the reason why Zelensky as well was blocked from, from you know, pursuing peace, which is what he won that incredible mandate on uh, in 2019, was because, you know, the far right threatened to attack him and to kill him. They said this openly, and there have been uh, attacks on, on government buildings uh, before in response to sort of attempts to, to impose Minsk. So Zelensky is in a very tricky situation. I tend to interpret uh, a lot of his public statements of the past at this point, you know, uh, 11, 10 months as, as partly, mm-hmm. you know, him having to kind of uh, work within this, this very uh, uh, hawkish, jingoistic political climate that has, has come to exist in Ukraine. Um, but, you know, I, I can point you to a number of examples before, around uh, as late as May, um, but before then too, Zelensky was, was quite openly in public saying, you know, we need negotiations. Um, he was actually, at one point, he asked for Western governments he, publicly. He, he asked them to, to be more involved in, in trying to make talks uh, succeed between uh, Putin and himself, between the Russian side and, and the Ukrainian side. Um, even even after the discovery of Bucha, the Bucha massacre, which um, mm-hmm. was one of the big events that kind of uh, right, right. Uh, basically uh, scuttled talks. It was, it was not the only thing, but it was a major part of it. Um, even when that was discovered, he said, "This is terrible. You know, this is this is horrendous. But we are still going to ultimately have to find a way to negotiate uh, because only talks are going to end this war." Um, I think that attitude, as a as an acceptable sort of um, uh, political opinion to express in Ukraine, really went away after the. Um, the the counteroffensive in uh, in September, um, at that point I think Ukraine uh, felt very much emboldened because it had gotten this huge battlefield success, um, and I think much of its backers had had been emboldened too. And 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 the view was well, there's no need for talks. We can just defeat Russia. Um, uh, I, obviously, the situation is very different now. Yeah. You know, it's, it it has not it has not been this kind of easy road to victory. It's now actually a, a very Brutal stalemate, and and one that um, you know, I mean, it's terrible for Russia too. But it's Russia is far better placed to uh, to, to weather um, than Ukraine is. You know, your Russia has far bigger population. So um, you know, uh, I, I think we should. I know it's a subtle change in language, but I think it's a significant one, and we should see it as a, a sign that maybe it's time to to try and you know push for some kind of of. If not a negotiated settlement, at least a ceasefire. Yeah, ceasefire. What what a concept. And you know, all this is is uh, reiterating what uh, FDR told uh, A. Philip Randolph: you gotta make it safe for the leaders to do it. There's a there's a hard right in Ukraine. Uh, they have weapons. A Lord knows. And, uh, you know, violence has happened in politics. I know it's a big shock to everybody. But, uh, you know, he, 
Zelensky, no doubt, wants to stay alive. He'd obviously and like to stay in power as well. There are a lot of pressures uh, coming from you know many different sides. And, and as you say, there have been occasional glimmers of hope for an end of the war in Ukraine in recent months. But it's an open uh, administri- uh, question on whether the Biden administration will support it. What are the what do you see as the pressures now on our administration? with regard to our policy in the war. We talked about the pressures on Zelensky and on Putin, there are pressures too. But w- tell us uh, what you see as the pressures on uh, the Biden administration regarding our policy in that war. Well, number one, um, much like Ukraine, I mentioned Russia too, uh, the United States is, I think, also caught in in kind of a this, this jingoistic um, uh, uh, discourse, this jingoistic climate that, that makes any talk of peace uh, very difficult. Uh, it, it means that uh, anyone who, who calls for diplomacy or, or anything other than sort of total military victory has to be very careful and will face a lot of political pushback. Uh, we saw that with the um, progressive uh, uh, letter, um, which was a very mild letter calling for diplomacy back in, uh, I, I think, October or so. Um, and they had to withdraw under this hail of criticism. Um, uh, mostly, I have to say, sadly, from uh, from the liberal, liberal press. Um, uh, so that's that's one part of it. Um, I, I think the other part of it is there's a, a concern that um, uh, uh, not appearing to uh, want to fight this war to the bitter end and sort of mm. defeat Russia is is going to um, reduce the U.S.'s public standing, you know, on, on the global stage. That that allies will say, "Oh, look, the United States, you know, it's it's at the end of the day, it's bark is a lot." worse than its bite and when it came down to it didn't really back Ukraine all the way and and you know can we really trust the United States to, to follow through on its commitments I think that's a that's an issue um, and um, I, I mean I think uh, as always uh, there's look I mean uh, war is, is one of the kind of ever-present political realities in the United States sadly um, and uh, I think there's always um, uh, 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 just an a, a constant um, pressure to sort of not view as uh, not 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 look as if one is surrendering to not lose face, uh, and and so on and so forth. So I think all of that I think combines um, uh, to make it a little bit tricky for for the Biden administration here. <laughs> I guess so. Not lose face. How many Americans and Vietnamese died in Vietnam so that uh, Johnson wouldn't be the first president to lose a war? He didn't want to lose face. And I see there's an ad. I think it's by the DeSantis campaign. They're already starting, believe it or not, uh, saying, we won't back down. There's that tough guy image. We have to look tough. And it's really hard to get around that. It's it's very popular. You know, a, a lot of people in America, you know, just see us, the U.S., as we're the ones that should be calling the shots, period. And uh, mm. it's... That's that's a lot of political pressure, and boy, that is tough to get around. But it has happened, and it did happen, you know, during America's war in Vietnam. Uh, there's no question about it that, that that the public pressure continued to grow and grow and grow, and it shifted public opinion. And we, yes, we made it safe, uh, safer <laughs> for the administration to uh, to pull out. Boy, it's yeah, politics. It's it's some tough stuff, and I will confess, I am not a reader of the Wall Street Journal. You apparently do read it. Good for you. <laughs> in March of this year, in in this is in your article in uh, Jacobin, they ran this headline: "U.S. seeks to head off any Chinese call for a ceasefire in Ukraine." Again, that headline: "U.S. seeks to head off." Any Chinese call for ceasefire in Ukraine? What's that about? What's behind that? Well, see, this is the uh, the difficulty of, of really understanding what is going on, uh, because the, the Biden administration has sent many mixed signals um, about what its actual strategy here is, if there even is one, uh, and and what its intentions are, what what it wants. You know, does it want peace? Does it want the war to go on? Um, I, I mean, similar to Ukraine and Russia, I think you can track a kind of the, the, this this sentiment has shifted. 
um, uh, over time. You know, so so at the beginning, um, there, there's quite a bit of evidence that they're really the United States and uh, some, not all, of of its NATO partners kind of wanted to to have the war uh, drag on, um, either thinking that, that Ukraine could uh, triumph or that, you know, it simply bleed Russia and sort of weaken it. Um, uh, I think once the threat of nuclear uh, 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 war mm-hmm. was kind of brought up around well, October, um, and once uh, uh, the Ukrainian war effort, you know, started to really stall, and thirdly, um, when the the quantity of weapons that were being sent to Ukraine were actually depleting um, uh, the U.S. armories and NATO armories, uh, which which you know they want to use hopefully if uh, if if a war with China is a thing. I mean, God forbid. Um, then uh, 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 that that's about when things start to change, and the Biden administration start to kind of put out some public and also some kind of more behind-the-scenes signals that actually this war needed to end and it was going to start pressuring Zelensky to, 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 to basically be more in favor of peace. But then you have um, uh, a headline like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, number one, you know, my first thought when I saw that, that Wall Street Journal headline is I thought, well, hold on, if the Chinese peace plan is really as unserious um, and, and, and everything that people are saying about it, uh, as, as they say, uh, then why would the U.S. you know seek to hit it off? Why would they try and prevent something that's not going to happen? Um, and then secondly, it made me think: Well, hold on, is the is the Biden administration signals that they've been sending that they really want to find peace, that they want uh, that they are engaging in diplomacy to try and find some some way to end this war that doesn't you know end in complete catastrophe? Mm. Is that serious, or was that for public consumption, or is this the part that's for public consumption? I think this is the entire problem of this war, uh, where we have not been told the truth about it from the very beginning, and it makes it very difficult to know what to do. I, I've seen, you know, multiple uh, contradicting statements um, from the administration, you know, uh, sometimes coming at the same time. So, I mean, this is why uh, I think that, you know, regardless of what the truth is, whether the Biden administration is really actually pushing for peace behind the scenes, and and it's just sort of telling the public. No, no, we, we, we mm-hmm. want Ukraine to, to win and, and get as much as territory as possible, or whether the case is that they are, in reality, you know, selling the, the peace line to us publicly while really pushing for uh, a longer war uh, uh, behind the scenes. Whatever the reality is, a, a uh, anti-war movement that's mobilized mm. um, uh, uh, to pressure the administration to, to move towards diplomacy and to to make that acceptable reality in American political life is uh, is crucial because whatever happens, it, it can only benefit. If the Biden administration is seeking peace, um, that kind of movement can help to uh, push public sentiment further along in that direction, make it okay to say, make it an okay thing to pursue and not saying that you have to kind of hide and, and withdraw a letter supporting it. Um, if they if they aren't really pursuing it, then maybe it will show. Hey, hey! Actually, a lot of the public mm. agrees with this, and you might actually be politically punished um, by voters. You know, in, in 2024, um, if you don't pursue this thing that that the majority of the public wants, it that there's increasing clamor for. Um, so this is this is my basic case, yeah. and, I, and I think you know, if you mentioned the Vietnam War, I mean, I think that's a it's a very good example. I mean, it took a long time to end that one, but but uh, no one would argue that public uh, uh, mobilization was not essential uh, to that happening. No, it clearly was. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Branko Marcetich, who writes for Jacobin magazine, and he's got an article, Joe Biden Can't Seek Peace in Ukraine Without a Robust Anti-War Movement. And... You know, it's it's been made very difficult for the left uh, to to call for that and not to wave uh, the Ukrainian flag. And I think we can support Ukraine. And quite frankly, I do. Uh, and I, be, I don't know how they can win. And I want the war to end. I want Ukraine to be safe and, and independent, uh, you know, and, and, and be a sovereign, have its sovereignty secure. But, you know, this pressure, like, what? wait a minute, if you don't support them fully, uh, you know, if you're calling for peace, if you're calling for a ceasefire, 
whoa, does that mean you support Putin? And we have to get around that. That's a very, that's quite a box that's been made to put a lot of people in. And part of that, you know, effort, uh, National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said recently, in the middle of, of uh, Xi Jinping's visit to Russia, if coming out of this meeting there's some sort of call for a ceasefire, well, that's just going to be unacceptable. What? That's amazing. You know, given that, I mean, neither Russia nor Ukraine are militarily in a position that I think they'd hoped for and expected. And, and you know, we're about to start a spring offensive. Uh, uh, Ukraine is about to do that. And there's a lot of concerns about that in uh, military circles and political circles in, in Washington right now. Uh, so if, if he says, if John Kirby is saying that, uh, that you know, a ceasefire is un- even a call for a ceasefire is unacceptable. Why would public pressure from the U.S. within the U.S. possibly make a difference? What's tell us? What's your sense of, of what Kirby had to say and and, and the the uh, mechanics behind that? Well, I think yeah, I I think uh, his point was that if you call for a ceasefire, that would cement the territorial gains Russia made. Um, no, which obviously would be, you know, those annexations are illegal, um, uh, not just morally wrong, but but just illegal under international law. Uh, and so that is a, a you know, a, a situation that is, is, you know, to, for lack of a better, better term, far from desirable. Um, however, uh, uh, at the same time, and we have to, to weigh up the possible, you know, loss of, of some Ukrainian territory to the right. immense suffering that, that Ukrainians are going through. I mean, the longer this war goes on, the more killing there is, the more trauma is inflicted on, on children and, and, and others uh, who live in these territories, the more, you know, the, the more abuse and war crimes are going to be committed. Mm. Um, uh, and, and you know, the, the more that, that Ukraine's uh, infrastructure and its its economy are going to be completely um, devastated, I mean, which, yeah. which they already are. So we have to weigh those things, you know. I mean, look, the RAND Corporation, which is a, a largely uh, Pentagon-funded um, think tank. They uh-huh. they had a report uh, late last year where they talked about the fact that yeah, look, I mean, that Ukrainian territory. If, they, if Ukraine lost it, it wouldn't be great. But the economic damage that's being inflicted by the war is going on and on and on is much worse than whatever you know economic benefit would come from from hanging on to our territory. Now, I mean, what would the uh, uh, public pressure do uh, to 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 you know possible changes? I mean, again, I think. I would hope it would um, uh, inject uh, a little bit of diversity into into the political discourse. I myself find when I talk to people in real life, um, mm-hmm. not you know on on Twitter or uh, you know not talking to other members of the press, um, that, that people are actually a lot more uh, uh, favorable towards the idea of peace. I mean, I think a lot of people um, really find it quite bizarre that that you know the the, the Strategy here would be to uh, have the war go longer uh, than to just try and find some sort of peace. Um, but what I think, though, as well, is that, that lawmakers are not hearing from those voices. Right. I think uh, either people, you know, people, for most people, this war is kind of going on in the background. Hmm. It's it's not uh, something that they're necessarily following closely. Um, and in some cases, you know, people have been quite surprised when I've told them, you know, how... Uh, dangerous the wars and how close it's going to come a few times to getting really out of hand um and so they're not they're not mobilized necessarily to do anything about it you know i think they they uh what they of course if they knew the the full reality they would want to do something but they're not they haven't really been informed or galvanized into into you know caring that much about the issue and and, and doing anything and i think you know this is part of what what movements can do they can yes. put an issue on the agenda they can Lead people to start thinking about an issue that they haven't um, thought about before. They can they can lead people to to you know maybe even change their minds um, about about a particular issue, including this war. Um, and it may even spur them to you know to call their their local representative, to call their senator, uh, or email them, or whatever, and say, hey, uh, I think it's about time that that the U.S. you know starts really actively uh, pushing for, for for some sort of diplomatic solution to this war. Um, that would be my hope. And I think, you know, again, um, 
the, the fact that there's no real uh, uh, presence out there at the moment. Right. Um, and, and in fact, you know, most of the anti-war voices, I hate to say it, sadly, are, are the ones on the right. Um, mm. you know, I think that has also uh, uh, kind of hurt the case in these ultra-polarized times because a lot of people just go, oh, well, this is just something that, you know, a bunch of Republicans and other right-wingers want, you know, and they're, they go, well, they, they clearly support Putin. They, they want to win. So, of course, they're pushing for, uh-huh. for peace. Uh, you know, perhaps the people saw that, that actually there's a far more diverse um, uh, constituency uh, in favor of diplomacy, in favor of peace that, yes. that spans the political spectrum. They might go, huh, okay, well, maybe actually this isn't quite the, the, the thing that I've been told that actually only Putin supporters and so on uh, uh, one piece, you know that that would be my my hope as well as kind of you know that that would let lawmakers go okay okay so it turns out there are people out there who want yes. um, who want peace. It's not just people who want us to continue the war uh, forever, and it's not just the Rand Pauls either. Uh, people on the right who who want to do that. Uh, that and I, I hate to say this, but but one of the uh, attributes of Americans is we get tired of stuff. It's boring. Oh, it's been in the headlines for a long time. <laughs> maybe that can actually uh, work uh, a little bit, that people maybe, you know, I, I think, I sense from real people that, as you say, that, that people are uh, interested in, uh, you know, finding some way to have a ceasefire there. And, uh, you know, one of the... Uh, it's it's there's a lot of territorial stuff going on in in all these wars in Europe, and uh, there was a Crimean War back in the mid 19th century, I believe, and Russia uh, took Crimea in 2014, and I wonder what you think about how the public might see, might feel, from 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 what you're you're gathering, you know, if Crimea remained with Russia. Is that a reasonable price to end the war? I mean, we're not there. You know, we we don't live in Crimea. I I I don't know. What's what's your, is that? Could that be something? You know, it's a relatively small piece of territory in in Ukraine slash Russia. Uh, your thoughts on on uh, the acceptability of that to the American public? Well, it's a good question because the the Crimea piece is, I think, kind of key. I mean, um, number one, uh, uh, a lot of uh, Russian analysts and experts have said that, that uh, Crimea is most likely, you know, the, the most likely issue that would spark some sort of nuclear exchange because of this such a sort of Thanks. emotional, uh, yeah, yeah, there, there's, there's such an emotional kind of um, uh, uh, feeling about it, you know, within Russia and the Russian establishment. Number one, um, yeah, and I think the other thing is that that you know some of these. Um, these other territories that that Putin annexed uh, last year, uh, I mean, I think, uh, it, it, of course, it's it's hard to say definitively, but my sense was that 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 was kind of a, a an act of desperation. You know, the, this war effort that had gone terribly. It was, it was a horrible miscalculation on his part. Um, it made him look uh, not just weaker on the world stage, but I think within Russia itself. And I think it was a way to sort of have out some uh, sort of victory um, or, or be able to go back mm-hmm. to the Russian public and say, oh, see, look, it wasn't all for nothing. I got mm-hmm. these, you know, these territories. Um, and, 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 you know, I mean, uh, there was actually a former Obama diplomat who recently said, you yes. know, when Russia says we're never going to negotiate about this stuff, when, you know, Ukraine has to accept that they're going to lose these territories. Now, maybe that, that is exactly the attitude they have, but also it's important to know that no one is going to go into negotiations sort of already negotiating themselves down. They're going to have a, a much more hardline public face. Um, now, that said, you know, while that I think is the case for those territories, with Crimea, I don't think uh, it's the case. Uh, uh, no, but that is not necessarily... Uh, the worst thing in the world. I mean, look, uh, it's a it's a complicated history, but but uh, people in Crimea. I mean, actually, NBC uh, recently, you know, they, they took a trip to to Crimea. They talked to people there, and they they found what uh, a lot of people who have been kind of attacked as you know Russian propagandists or sort of you know Kremlin apologists and so on and so forth over the past year. A lot of what they've been saying, which is that the people in Crimea. Um, most of them, they they feel Russian. They mm-hmm. they want to stay part of Russian. They don't want to stay part of Ukraine. Um, and uh, 
I mean, if you look at uh, polling, I mean, that, that region, uh, that territory was annexed illegally by, by Putin in 2014. There's no doubt about that. You can't just, you know, uh, waltz in and, and, and create some sort of phony referendum and say, oh, this is ours now. I mean, that is not how <laughs> civilized life works. But uh, even though that was improper and illegal, um, it is true that public opinion polls since since 2014 and even at the time um, showed that, that the majority of the people there did want to be part of Russia. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, there, there was, there's been a Crimean independence movement for a long time that mm. wanted to separate itself from Ukraine. Um, so, I mean, all that is to say that, of course, look, none of this is, is how any of this should have happened. Um, if, if Crimea was ever supposed to go back to be part of Russia, um, it should not have been done the way it was done. The way it was done was completely flagrantly illegal um, and, and only served to make this entire situation so much worse. Um, but if as part of negotiations, Crimea uh, ended up uh, with Russia. Ukraine accepted the loss of Crimea, and perhaps in return, it not just you know got the end of this war, but perhaps also the return of some of its territories or some other sort of concession from Russia. I don't think that would be a a, a uh, something that that anyone has to lose sleep over. Um, I think that that actually could be a pretty acceptable situation. And most most. Uh, more than anyone, for the people of Crimea themselves. I mean, we keep talking about you know self determination, agency. Right. I mean, surely we have to take into account what those people want. Um, so, interesting. Yeah, they, they they that that's an important aspect of it. I wonder about. I mean, Zelensky again. He's very popular in in the United States. I, I wonder how sensitive he may be to the the public perception of him in America. Uh, and I wonder, you know, if he has to play to uh, America a little bit. He's got, you know, a pretty hardline position toward talks. Maybe, as as you say, maybe that hardline position may be the result of domestic political constraints, mm-hmm. not just in uh, Ukraine, but it, I mean, not just in America, but in Ukraine as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, when we talk about Ukraine, uh, it, it's it's difficult to say, you know, what exactly opinion is um, because it's it differs by region it differs by uh, what uh, how far away a particular part of Ukraine that you're, you're talking to is away from the battlefield uh-huh. um, yeah, you know cool. I mean uh, it, public opinion polls to the extent that they can you know really be, be accurate but they have shown a, a, a trend definitely that that uh, your part the, the, the parts of Ukraine that are in the west so they're further away from the front line they tend to be um, far more kind of um, uh, have a hardline position towards mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. towards war, who are more against, uh, 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 more strongly against talks and negotiations. They want to give up Crimea, so on and so forth. The places that are close to the front line, um, and also the places that you know, um, uh, and some of these contested regions, you know, from in, in, in the Donbass, um, the kind of separatist part of it that that where civil war has been going on since 2014, um, it's, it's, they tend to be much more in favor of, you know, talks and much more willing to sort of give up certain things to end the war because, you know, it makes sense. They're the ones who are suffering most directly. Um, there's actually been, uh, a, you know, a, a few recent uh, pieces. Anatole Levin at the Quincy Institute, uh, uh-huh. you know, he's a, he used to be a journalist who worked in the region for many years and, and, and he's a, you know, a, a very well-regarded expert on Russia and, and Ukraine and the entire sort of, you know, uh, ex-Soviet space. And he went to Ukraine uh, a few weeks back and he talked about the fact that, you know, what, what he found was um, life kind of in, 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 you know, in Kiev and Western Ukraine is very different um, to, to some of these other regions that are closer to the front line. And there's also, you know, you can see that there's a huge kind of, uh, a wealth gap that's on display with all these oh, kind of luxury stores and that kind of thing. So, you know, I mean, we, we, when we talk about Ukraine, we have to, to understand that it's, it's a very diverse amount of opinion. I mean, the other thing that he found, um, that this is something that I um, have, have, have been told as well by, by people that I've talked to in Ukraine, is that because of the political atmosphere, because of the, um, the, the, the kind of increased repression of dissent uh, since the war began, and, and you know, because, of yeah. course, political climate kind of got inflamed because the country was attacked. Um, there's a lot of fear uh, around talking openly. So, you know, even if, say, the majority of Ukrainians 
um, you know, take the the the, the very hardline position. Uh-huh. No, no negotiations. We won't give anything up. Fight till victory. Um, uh, the the people who have a different opinion won't say so publicly because they could lose their jobs. They could end up in jail. Uh, they could, you know, suffer all sorts of uh, 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 bad outcomes. And so uh, not only do you not hear from those people, but also because there's no debate, there's no chance uh, for people to change their minds. Mm. Um, you know, that's, that's part of the process of debate is that, that people aren't necessarily just dug into their position. Sometimes they go, oh, you know what, um, that, what that person's saying makes sense. So all these things, um, you know, I think there's a domestic constraint. I think in yes. terms of, you know, the the, the uh Constraint in the United States. I mean, there's definitely a, uh, a polling has shown us that the more that the American public believes that the Ukraine is uh, not doing well, that it's not going to win, the less likely they are support, uh, to support uh, mm. uh, further military aid. And so, I think that partly explains why publicly we keep getting these kind of very uh, sunny, optimistic. Uh, mm. uh, uh, evaluations of the the war effort telling us you know Ukraine will win definitely everything's going great Russia's doing terribly so on and so forth um, and then you know it turns out this leak comes out um, and we find out that behind the scenes uh, U.S. officials are actually deeply dismayed and worried about the the state of the Ukrainian war effort. Ah uh, yeah, so we're hearing some things and other stuff is going on and we've seen throughout. You know, history that uh, uh, often movements start really small, really small, and then over time, it takes a long time and a lot of heavy lifting, and that it actually does grow and it makes a difference. It has happened before. Uh, it, it, and and uh, just in case for those who just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with our guest, uh, Branko Marcetic, who uh, wrote on uh, in Jacobin magazine, Joe Biden can't seek peace in Ukraine without a robust anti-war movement. Maybe that's starting to happen. I don't know. And you write that uh, that Zelensky would require concerted political support from his Western backers to be able to successfully steer toward negotiations and a ceasefire. Boy, we I I haven't seen much of that yet. But there is one voice in Congress. And that's how it often starts. And that's uh, California's Ro Khanna, uh, who, a terrific guy, I think. You say officials are privately doubtful about the uh, spring offensive, the long hype spring offensive. I, I wonder, do you think, could it be that we may be starting to see uh, more political room being made slowly, as it always happens, for voices getting louder for negotiations, and that perhaps uh, eventually, as you say, the administration is now trapped in its own stifling, peace-averse domestic political climate. Maybe that climate is changing. Uh, So, you know, we're we're just a few voices here. What can we do? We are not powerless. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I think, yeah, Rokana has been one of the the most courageous, I think. I mean, he he signed that letter that I mentioned, even when it was withdrawn by the Congressional Caucus. And, and what was uh, that again? Uh, what was that letter again? It was a letter that was put out, it was shortly after, you know, uh, uh, there was some of the nuclear threats were made, and um, there had been, you know, a push for a long time from from anti-war, uh, you know, lobbying groups, interest groups, um, who were trying to get uh, Democrats to to sort of be more vocal about peace. And that, and finally, the fruits of these efforts were um, in October. They put forth this letter to to, to President Biden, and they said, "Hey, uh, you know, we we support everything you're doing. We think." Absolutely, you should be supporting Ukraine. Um, everything that you've done has been, you know, basically perfect. <laughs> but the only thing is, we would like you to talk about peace more, and we want you to to, to now push more towards some sort of diplomatic solution. Um, and and this uh, because of this massive uh, flood of criticism that that letter got from, from yeah. sadly the the liberal side, um, mm-hmm. uh, which viewed as kind of you know all that stuff I've said before, appeasement and. Uh, you know, betrayal and so on and so forth, uh, they ended up withdrawing it. Now, Rokana, to his credit, um, actually 
continued to, to, to hold that line and he, and he said, you know, um, uh, he defended the, the putting out the letter, he defended putting his name on it. He said, no, I, I you know, I don't reject uh, my signing of it. I think that's still the, the right thing to do. Um, unfortunately, he's, he's really one of the few progressive voices that, that has, at least when it comes to um, elected officials. A, a lot of the other uh, elected officials who have, have started to, to say things along these lines have been on the right. Um, mm-hmm. Now, which on the one hand is is encouraging because often it's sure. the right that's been the most kind of diplomacy okay. averse, right. <laughs> exactly. Right. But um, but I think the fact that it, it's you know been almost only the right that's that's saying the stuff. And, and by the way, it's not because you know people progressives or whatever don't believe in the stuff. I think it's just they're fearful of um, saying the wrong thing in this climate. But because of that, um, you know, again, people are uh, there's not as much kind of sway from that side. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think I, I applaud him. Um, I wish that, that more people started to, I think it's entirely possible, uh, you know, uh, that, that if you want to, if you, if you side or agree with, you know, sending military aid to Ukraine and, and supporting its war effort, you can do so and also say, hey, by the way, diplomacy is the right thing here. Um, that's basically the balance that Rokan has struck. Um, and it's, it's, he's not the only one who can do that. I think that's a, um, that's a line that, that many other lawmakers can. I mean, one of the, I've actually, to be honest, been disappointed by Bernie Sanders, who has really completely avoided, avoided this issue. Yeah. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders, he, he, when he was a elected mayor in Burlington, his first political office in Vermont, uh, he was a very, uh, uh vocal, anti-war voice, uh, very, very vocal voice against nuclear war. He wrote a letter to Reagan, in fact, criticizing him for some of his, um, for some of his rhetoric around the Soviet Union and saying, hey, you know, this kind of thing is unhelpful and it's actually going to make uh, some sort of catastrophic war much worse. And he really has been a, a very low key in this issue. The only thing he will say is basically that, that you know, where we should be supporting Ukraine and, and you know, sure. that kind of thing. Um, I, I wish that more lawmakers followed, you know, on the left, followed uh, what Ricardo was doing. Being of the left myself, that, you know, we can, I, I am for Ukraine, I'm for its independence, for its sovereignty, and that doesn't mean we can't be for, hey, a ceasefire, you know, let's have a ceasefire. We want people's, you know, to me, blood should stay in people's bodies, you know, you know, you can work for diplomacy as well as uh, supporting Ukraine. The two are not uh, uh, contradictory at all, I don't think. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, any other uh, suggestions as to what people can do? Before I forget, we're not the only Western country that's that's supporting Ukraine. And I, I imagine, as you said earlier, France and in Europe, where they're, they have a different perspective, they're st- I suspect starting to be some movement there in favor of a ceasefire. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the the reaction from France is uh, instructive. You know, again, the uh, Brazil's uh, uh, moves right. as well. Lula. Um, terrific, yeah. Absolutely, because uh, uh, Lula, I think, very much is reflecting the sentiment of, of the, the global South. I mean, uh-huh. uh, it has to be said that that the uh, countries that are, uh, or at least the governments that are most kind of anti-negotiations and sort of let's just kind of uh, go until, until Ukraine achieves victory, that tends to be the global north, which is wealthier mm. and also the minority of the human population. Yeah, um, the, the, the majority of the world's uh, uh, population, at least the governments uh, that represent the majority of the world's population, uh, particularly the poorest parts of the world, want the kind of thing that Lula is doing. They want the kind of thing that China is doing to, to succeed. Yes. And I think it's not just China. The U.S. has to play a role too because the U.S. is not just the leading military patron for Ukraine, but it's also the most powerful country in the world. Its opinion can sway the rest of some of these NATO states that are kind of more along the hawkish line. 
you know, and uh, the U.S. is ultimately the country that's going to be able to guarantee Zelensky's safety, you know, from mm. being um, killed at, at yeah. worst. I'm saying that, but it, it's, it really is a, a real true. risk. Oh, yeah. And and so call, preferably, or, or even email your, your local representatives. Uh-huh. Um, I think, you know, there's a there's a group, Diffuse Nuclear War. Um, I believe it's connected to Roots Action. They organized some anti-war actions uh, last year in October. Um, I think they have more on, on the plan and the horizon. So see if you can get involved in that. You know, there are protests here and there. They've just been small. But yeah. The more people that come out, you know, the stuff can build. I really, really want to advocate people to, to do all of that. Well, it's always tough to be ahead of your time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. Branko Marsatit, it's uh, been really terrific to have you, and it's good to get that helpful viewpoint on uh, what's going on over there. No, I really appreciate it. I thank you for uh, raising these issues as well. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.